Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. Good morning, good morning. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And, oh, i got a great show for you this morning. We're going to have Don Brash along. He has cancelled his subscription to the National Business, Business Review. A journalist has upset him. And when you think of all the things that have been said over, about Don Brash over many, many, many years, what on earth did this journalist say to upset Don Brash? We've got Tane Webster and Marie Buskey along doing the Politics Explained, and they'll be talking about the Maori seats, their history, and why we have them. Do we need them? And then the wonderful, fabulous Barry Brill, who was amazingly a minister of energy, Associate Minister of Energy, back in the Muldoon administration. And he's kept up his interest all these years. And he'll be talking to us about the climate change, or let's not beat about the bush, the climate change scam. So stay, stay tuned. Great show. And remember, please, send me an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Send me a text, text 2057. You're on Reality Check Radio. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought alternative thought and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say Whatever side you're on, and the listener, the consumer, with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, please send me an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Send me a text at 2057. Uh, coming up right now, we've got my very good friend, Dr. Don Brash. Um, he's famous because he's paired up with Casey Costello, one of your favorites. Um, we've had Casey Costello on. Every time I have her on, I get swamped with support for her. 
So Don's famous because he hangs out with Casey Costello. The two of them have started Hobson's Pledge, which you have to go to the webpage, you have to sign up because their work is so important to not just the prosperity of our children and our grandchildren in our country, but also the peace of our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, our grandchildren and our country. So welcome, Don. Thank you very much. Good to be on. Well, it's lovely to have you because you were most famously the Governor of Reserve Bank. You're a PhD in economics. You were the leader of the National Party. Uh, You rescued the National Party from oblivion and took it within a whisker of getting government and, in fact, could have had government and been Prime Minister. You then took over the uh, ACT Party at a perilous stage and kept it alive, which has proved wonderful. And most people would say, well, you know, done a few things. I think I'll go and play bridge. But here you are engaged in... I would suggest the deepest and biggest battle of your life, my life, and our country's history. Would you agree? In some ways, that's absolutely right, Rodney. Uh, And funnily enough, I fell into the debate. Uh, I didn't have a particular focus on this issue of racial equality while I was Reserve Bank Governor, for example. Uh, When I went into politics, my main focus was on the economy. And when I became leader of the National Party, I had five key issues, one of which was racial equality. And I gave my first major speech uh, after becoming leader on that issue, thinking it was only a continuation of what the National Party had long advocated for. Uh, Bill English, before me as leader, of course, had made a number of speeches saying equal citizenship was fundamental. In fact, I recall going to a National Party conference where the big slogan across the wall was one law for all. So when I spoke to the Arewa Rotary Club in January 2004, I thought I was simply saying what was established orthodoxy for the National Party. Uh, Somehow it caught fire and it suddenly was a a major statement, which was new. It wasn't new in in substance, but it, it was some way portrayed as new. And from that time on, almost, I've not been an economist. I've been a guy who's been advocating for equal uh, citizenship under the law. And I'm I'm not unhappy about that because it's a fundamentally important issue for this country's future. Uh, You mentioned that Casey Costello and I had established Hobson's Pledge. In fact, it was slightly bigger than that. Initially, it was Hobson's Choice, which was uh, partly a reference to Governor Hobson, of course, but also sort of a play on the Hobson's choice reference to the fact we only have one choice about our future. Then we discovered Hobson's choice was the brand name of a bacon company. Ah. So we had to change the name to Hobson's pledge. Hobson said as the treaty was signed, we are now one people. But there were 14 of us at that point. Now, gradually, as time's gone on, some people have died, some people have have moved away, etc., uh, there are now four trustees, a firm Casey and I are too, and we are both spokespeople for the organisation. But no, it's it's from quite small beginnings, it's gathered a lot of support from the public. We now have close to 150,000 people signed up to Hobson's Pledge. Wow. And that's uh, it's really uh, carrying some weight. That's extraordinary. And it's interesting, 
thinking back to 2004 in your speech, because may I characterize it in this way, I'll put a hypothesis to you, Don, with the benefit of hindsight, that the National Party hadn't changed, but New Zealand politics was being changed. I don't think the people had changed. I think it was a top-down thing. And so the idea was uh, those in power had decided, no, it's no longer one law for all. That's no longer the big thing in New Zealand. Not only that, they did a tactic which was to go out and to destroy you. And the attacks that you took over your Orewa speech, and as you say, with Bill and they'd been ignored when you said when you said them, they came after you. And I think, again, it's a total hype speculation, that the thought was that you would buckle because you were new to politics. And what rallied people to your cause, Don, was I'll never forget that interview with Kim Hill. And <laughs> I you, <laughs> you stood your ground. And that's when people said, this guy is real. Because they've heard Winston Peters, they've heard Bill Lingler say these things. But it's felt like a politician saying it who won't do it. Do you know what I mean? But when you took this bitterly, this bitter attack on you, and in a gentlemanly way, in a polite way, explained your position, you won a lot of support. Yes, I think there's something in that. I recall that Kim Hill interview very well too. It was a 30-minute interview from memory at 7 o'clock in the evening, primetime television watching. A lot of people saw it. I think it's also true that uh, the media generally was very antagonistic. You may recall the Sunday Star Times, which then, as I think is a broadsheet, uh, devoted their entire front cover to two photographs, one of me looking into the page and the other of Pauline Hanson looking at me from the other side of the page. Mm. The inference being that I was New Zealand's Pauline Hanson, and because Pauline Hanson was racist, therefore Don Brash was racist. That yes. was the inference of the thing. And um, it had the most extraordinary effect on support for the National Party. People say if we'd gone to an election at that point, National could have won because mm. National had been around 28% in the polls, suddenly jumped to 45%, and the following poll went to 48%. And th there was such an extraordinary jump that Conway Brunton, which did the poll for TV1, assumed it was a mistake and redid the poll. And that confirmed the fact that this is an extraordinary jump. So it certainly rocketed the National Party up and indeed rocketed my uh, standing as preferred Prime Minister, even though I thought I was saying what is perfectly acceptable, uh, standard, orthodox National Party policy. So, oh, and, and what for 100 years didn't even need to be said. That's right. Exactly. Um, isn't it fascinating, because this is where we're leading to with this report, but it's fascinating how top-down what's right and proper is decided in New Zealand because the media decided to paint the leader of the opposition polling at 45% as an out-and-out -out racist 
and in the most derogatory terms. And in the same way, speak derogatorily of your supporters, the people of New Zealand who are their readers. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's true. A little bit in the same sort of way that when Hillary Clinton described the supporters of Trump as deplorables, she lost yes. those people. Whatever you think of Trump, and I'm not defending Trump, but attacking people as as deplorables never never works in politics. Well, no, I disagree. I think it does. Already? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes, I think it works incredibly well. I, I, I um, it's no, yes, I, I, I think attacking people personally is fantastic, because think of it. My great example, which awoke me to sort of what's going on, was climate change, because that was sort of a thing, and I knew the argument didn't stack up. And I read everything that I could back in the day, and it was like preposterous. It was built on cards. It was so flimsy. And... There were very serious scientists, you know, that you'd look up to who were saying this is nonsense. It only exists in the models and fraudulent papers. Yet it gathered and gathered and gathered. And I remember speaking out on it and Helen Clark in Parliament calling me a climate change denier. I expected all of the media to get on top of her and attack her for he heaping personal abuse at Christian time. No, I was the one abused. And then when I found myself walking around um, in Epsom, people said, oh, I can't vote for you because, you know, you, you don't care for the environment or you're a climate change denier. The label worked. An anti-vaxxer if you question, you know, mandates. Uh, the river of filth, um, racist. And not only do people not want to be science deniers or climate change deniers or racist, they actually don't want to associate people that are labelled as racist. It's an extraordinarily successful uh, tactic, which it shouldn't be, right? Um it shouldn't be successful, but I think it is. And, and this is actually one I've got you on to talk about because I've never seen that before. It's only with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, the question you're asking me is? I think the tactic of personally attacking someone right. in New Zealand now is extremely successful. Yeah, uh, I think it's certainly true that there are a large number of people who agree with me on the question of race, who don't want to say it out loud. Yeah. Uh, people sometimes come up to, the, to me in the street and say, looking both ways carefully, I, I agree with you. Yeah. They don't want to be seen talking to Don Brash. <laughs> but, well, and they don't want their, maybe their wives or their husbands to know. Yeah. I've had that. Yeah. Um, and and of course, at the same time, as you get attacked, you get denied your platform. And that sometimes has happened, as you know. 
I mean, mm. the, the best known example was when I was banned from speaking at Massey University. Mm. Not about race specifically. I was being asked to talk about my time as leader of the National Party. Mm. Uh, race might have come up because the, the Oriwa speech was an important milestone in that uh, leadership, but uh, that was not the primary focus of the speech at all. Mm. So uh, the, the vice chancellor was just nervous that I might talk about race. And then, of course, we had the famous uh, Kelly J. Keane, um, who was coming to New Zealand to speak about women's rights to private spaces and to sport, yep. who was declared by politicians in the media to be a Nazi. Not yep. only was she denied an opportunity in our media to put her position or counter position, she was denied an opportunity to speak in Albert Park. That's right. Violent thugs. Disgraceful. So, so there is a pattern across the board. What we love about you, Don, is your politeness and your naivety because <laughs> you always see you can't see the skullduggery that's going on because <laughs> you assume that these are good actors. And I've long ago realised that we're dealing with, I can only think of a non-broadcastable term, but we're dealing with skunks, you know, people who are nasty. I don't know how it's orchestrated, but there's a left-wing sort of orchestrated authoritarian view which attacked the leader of the National Party who was speaking up about one law for all, putting pictures but beside other uh, politicians and therefore implying that they were racist. Um, and less than usual, which brings us to this piece. Here you are, former Reserve Bank governor, economist, um, businessman, and you've written a surprising piece, actually, all the more surprising for you, given your politeness and conservatism, in our blog called Bassett, Brash and Hyde, and I commend that blog to, to everyone. And you've wrote a piece because you cancelled your subscription to the National Business Review, which is probably the one and only business newspaper in New Zealand that used to be highly regarded, and you've said enough. And in particular, it was one article that gave you pause to think and had you saying, I will not be renewing my subscription, which is a big deal of one article, right? Yeah, I mean, this particular author, uh, Dita Deboni, has written a number of articles over the years, which I found irritating and uh, surprising for a supposedly business-friendly newspaper. But this one really got my goat. It really irritated the hell out of me. And I thought, I'm not willing to subscribe to this magazine when they're promoting that kind of nonsense. So uh, it was the final straw for me. Uh, as I say, she's not the only one who's, to my mind, well left to centre. I saw just yesterday another uh, article by someone else who was deploring uh, the people who are opposed to the Auckland Council's zoning rules, uh, which I'm also strongly opposed to. But the inference was the Auckland Council were the good guys and these nasty developers who just wanted to build more houses were the bad guys. And there's a podcast by, again, Dieter Deboni and the other author, and they were very smug about the fact that they were going to stop all these nasty people who wanted to build houses because Auckland Council likes a small, intensified uh, 
city with no uh, urban sprawl. They're left-wing nutcases, frankly, uh, committed to having housing uh, way unaffordable for most ordinary New Zealanders. And I just thought this is this is the MBR's really gone to the dogs. Well, take me to the article and the opening paragraph. Read it to me and our listeners. Have you got it there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the opening paragraph you want? Yes. Yeah. Dog whistling, race baiting, call it what you will, but National and Act's premeditated, strategic and specific targeting of anxious white voters in the lead-up to the election 2023 suggests these parties will do anything to win, even if it means stoking an unstoppable race war. Stop there. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. It's extraordinary that she would think that. Yep. It's extraordinary that she would write that. It's amazing it'll go through an editor. Yep. And we're not talking a blog, a left-wing blog. We're talking the National Business Review. Yeah. So, National Act are sitting on close or sometimes over, sometimes under, 50% of the committed support. Yep. They have the support of 50% of New Zealanders. They're not like a fringe parties trying to get 1%. She accuses them of dog whistling. Yep. That's right. Absolutely. Well, and and Rodney, in the following paragraph, she refers to this these people as lunatic fringe. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, insane. It's breathtaking. Well, and the race baiting when, and mm. you and I aren't involved in this in the sense that it's one thing when you're being attacked because you feel so shocked by it, but where it's national and act being attacked. Fair enough, you led both parties, but you're looking at it from the outside. They're race baiting when what they're saying is what Martin Luther King said. That's right. It's what we said. The reason was we opposed apartheid. Yep. So now to oppose apartheid, is to be a dog-whistling race baiter. <laughs> Sadly, that's right. She doesn't need to explain that. Like, There's no explanation of, look, you might think it a bit odd that I'm calling uh, uh, parties that have mainstream support and who are advocating for one law, race baiting, but here's my reasons. Nothing. No. They go on that there's a thing called Oh, this premeditated, strategic, and specific targeting, that's just nonsense in the sense that, of course, if you give a speech, you think about it before you give it. So I guess it's premeditated. And I guess it's strategic because you think about the five things you're going to concentrate. But then she says they're targeting white voters, right? So immediately, the election is about white versus brown. 
Well, we know that's not true because we know there's a lot of Maori voters who support National Act. That's right. And then she has them that they're anxious, mm-hmm. that they're worried when they don't need to be. And then she goes to say this. This, funny enough, doesn't strike me as correct English because she says, even if it means stoking an unstoppable race war, well, if it, if the race war is unstoppable, you don't need to stoke it. I don't understand the unstoppable race war, what the unstoppable bit means, because if it's unstoppable, it's going to happen. But she says that National Enact, 50% support, will do anything to win, including stoking an unstoppable race war. What do you make of that, Don? Uh, well, as I say, it's just uh, it's just outrageous stuff. Uh, uh, I mean, to, to say, as you point out, that all citizens should have equal rights is to stoke an unstoppable race war is is uh, Orwellian. <laughs> it's it's a totally upside down speech. Yeah. Um, the, she also goes on in the next paragraph, and I'll read you this, and I want you to respond. In the past few weeks alone, three issues, I think it's co-governance, road signs, um, Ipodiki, three issues with a racial element to them have been beaten up beyond all recognition by the New Zealand Herald and seized on by National Act in a way that suggests these parties have barely moved on from the Robert Muldoon years when it comes to race relations. Beaten up beyond all recognition, the New Zealand Herald, which we regard as a mad left-wing rag now, is in on it. But she never explains that beyond all recognition. How has Three Waters been beaten up beyond all recognition? She doesn't explain that in the article. How is it beaten up by all recognition? No. I mean, it's it's just a total uh, nonsense, frankly, Rodney. Uh, And, I mean, the New Zealand Herald has been notable for not beating up on the government on this issue. Yes. Well, they're paid. They are paid. That's right. That's right. They can't criticise it because they're being paid. To interpret the treaty in a particular government-approved manner. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Is the NBR in receipt of government money in that way, or does it want it? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Well, tell me. I want to know this because I feel as though, Don, if I may be so bold, that just maybe your good faith belief in your fellow citizens and journalists and your unshakable politeness, that this might be a chink. Because she actually isn't that stupid. Uh, well, and what what is she trying to achieve by this, this trick, if it's a trick? What's she trying to achieve? To win. To prompt me to cancel my sub? <laughs> no, no, no. No, 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 no. Let me put this to you, Don. 
there is a left-wing agenda, mm-hmm. just like there's a centre-right or a right-wing agenda. Mm-hmm. Our agenda is um, freedom of the individual, mm-hmm. small government, limited government, low taxes, uh, markets, capitalism, and the ability to get on with our lives, one law for all, the principles of Western civilization. Mm-hmm. On the other side, I'm not talking about voters, I'm talking about activists, mm-hmm. typically with a BA or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they are left wing authoritarians. Mm-hmm. They want elites and state power. They want the collective to rule. They want their ideas to dominate mm-hmm. and to run the country. Mm-hmm. They, funny enough, can't agree on how the country should be run. That's why authoritarians always collapse or end up with a tyrant who basically puts fear of God into everyone. And that tyrant ends up implementing their ideas. But in the lead up to that, the left-wing authoritarians are wanting to establish a powerful central control state. Would you accept that? Uh, Yes, I would. Part of the way of doing that is to, oh, along the way, following Marx and other thinkers, so it's nothing new, they dismiss reason, science, and facts, and economics, so that what you say is a consequence of you, whether you're an oppressor or a victim. So capitalists think a certain way, workers think a certain way. Um, white men think a certain way and have power and are evil because anything that's bad that's happening is coming from that power. So they have a victim mentality, an oppressor mentality. And that trumps reason and facts because you don't reason and argue with Don Brash because he's an old white man who's privileged. You don't argue with him because he's clever with words and he uses words and economics and facts and constitutional arguments and legal and his understanding of history. And he'll overwhelm you with that. So you have to dismiss him. And you would dismiss him and his supporters by calling them names. Yep. So... And the most offensive name they can think of these days is racist. Yes. And it is offensive. Yeah. 
I hate being called a racist. Yep. And they don't care that they've inverted it because it's effective. Yep. So if you were in a debate with Dieter de Boney, you'd be listening most carefully to what she was saying and responding to her point by point. She would never give you that courtesy. Right. Because she would lose. She would lose on your terms, and she would say, your terms are wrong. Yep. Because it's Western civilization and the Enlightenment that has given us this terrible planet and all this division. Yep, yep. And so can you see what I'm saying? No, absolutely. I'm currently reading The War on the West, which you may have read also by Douglas yes. Murray. Yes. And what you're saying is absolutely consistent with that. Uh, it's an attack on rational thought and rational argument, uh, which is which is scary. So scary, Don, that we become confused, bewildered, angry, alone, and disempowered as citizens. Because when you read this piece, you're bewildered by it because you actually think she's mad. Yep. But what she's saying is the dominant view of those in a position of power in New Zealand. That's certainly true at the moment. Uh, of the current government yes. and indeed of a number of people in some of the other political parties. Yes, because whatever the other political parties think, they're mindful of the media. Mm -hmm. And they're mindful of the middle voter. So for, for Chris Luxon to win, he's got to win voters over that were voting for Jacinda Ardern. Mm -hmm. That's right. Who read this and are persuaded by it yep. in an osmosis way. You know what I mean? Yep. yep. In fact, I wonder, Don, I'd be interested in your view on this. Do you think if you gave the Orewa speech today or if when you gave the Orewa speech if in 2004 the conditions were like they were now, you would have that uptick. Yep, that's right. And I don't know the answer to that question. Because you wouldn't have got on, Kim Hill. Well, I mean, it's interesting. When Judith Collins was leader of the National Party, yes, made two or three very strong speeches following the release of the Heipuapu report. Yes, he did. And uh, I thought they were good speeches, strong speeches. And she got dumped on from a great height not only from the media who accused her of racism, but I, but I strongly suspect 
from many people in her own caucus. Um, for one reason or another, she backed off that attack. And when the national conference that year took place, these major speeches were at regional conferences of the National Party. When the national conference of the National Party took place that year, she barely mentioned that issue. And whether it was caucus pressure or whether it was focus group work they'd done to check out the general public, I don't know. But for whatever reason, she went very quiet on that issue. Mm. So this suggests, as you say, the mood has shifted since 2004. It's fascinating, Don. Have you heard back from the NBR? No. Well, uh, yes, I have. I got an email saying, look, she's uh, one journalist. Uh, we call it the flip, I think they call it the flip side or flip. Um, they, they acknowledge that she's not um, the normal business reporter, but there's only one column per fortnight, uh, you know, it's still a very good paper, et cetera. Uh, I frankly haven't replied to that um, because it, it is to me so far beyond the pale that I'm just not uh, willing to support it in any way. Um, well, it's hate speech by their own definition. Well, that's right. It is indeed. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and misinformation. Yeah, that's right. I what, what, who believe in racial equality, the lunatic fringe is by definition hate speech. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but you see, you can see that you and I, and probably listeners, are struggling with it. Because you can't imagine a literate thinking person writing this. Well, sad, sadly, I can, because I think what we've seen in the last decade or so is a major infiltration in the, in the school system. Our kids are being fed this nonsense. Mm. So it's now become sort of orthodoxy. The Treaty of Waitangi did not as we've been taught for a hundred and something years, create equal opportunity for all. Article 3 clearly states, on the contrary, as uh, a totally different theory of what the treaty actually said, totally inconsistent with the words of the treaty itself and, of course, of the speeches made at the time. But the new orthodoxy is partnership, equal representation of those with a Maori ancestor and those who don't have a Maori ancestor. I mean, it's all a absolute nonsense and utterly inconsistent with any concept of democracy. Mm. But but it's believed by some people in in relevant power positions and it's taught in our schools. And it's being taught by people like Dita Deboni mm -hmm. who know better. Yeah, I'm not sure if she knows better. I mean, she may just be playing brainwashed herself. I mean, well, that's she, a good phrase, isn't it? Well, yes, it is indeed. I mean, she is obviously uh, either sinister or misled, mm. seriously misled. One or the other. Um, what I notice is no matter who you are, you only have time to delve into one or two issues, and the rest of it, you sort of take as a given because you just don't have time to figure it out. I have no clue what the Ukrainian war is about, right? I have no idea. And 
most people read the news. No, well, they don't even do that nowadays. But, in, you know, they sort of take on board what's happening on the radio and the news without almost thinking. And that forms your opinion of things. Yep. So I noticed that with climate change. What's the argument that we're causing, risking catastrophic global warming is a very, very sophisticated argument. It's it's not a simple thing. Yep. Trust me, Greta, Greta doesn't understand it. But if you're a lefty, this becomes lefty start saying this, and you agree with it because you're a lefty, if you know what I mean. Yep, that's right. So if you're sitting in Grey Lynn or Newton, where they sit in Wellington and Auckland, I don't know where, you know, they sort of, they, the details of this I'll world. Anyway. Yeah, right. the details of this world. Yeah. It's just the latest cause. It's sort of like Palestine. Yep. Or um, hate Trump or get back. So whatever the cause is, whatever Jacinda says or the Labour Party says or the left wing leaders say, I'm hot for. Yeah, that's right. And then there's been a new threshold developed where you don't even need to pretend to explain your position. You don't have to say, look, they've beaten this up beyond all recognition. You don't have to explain how Three Waters has been beaten up beyond all. Because, I mean, if it was beaten up beyond all recognition, you'd say, well, look, it's just a simple change. And actually, we aren't going to have any special rights. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I know about it, right? We're going to have special rights. She doesn't say that's wrong. Yeah. Right? And so we've gone to this next step where you can just spout this, and I imagine you sit down, have your latte and your red wine with your friends, and feel very good about yourself. Because, boy, didn't you give those dog-whistling race baiters, anxious white voters, a bit of stick. The mad fringe, the deplorables, the rivers of filth. That is how they're describing us, Don. Yeah, that's right. Well, on the good news, Don, you've cancelled your subscription, which I fully support. By the way, I used to write for the NBR, and probably 10 years ago, and I'd written for them on and off since 1989. About 10 years ago, the then editor started to say, oh, sort of maybe not talk about treaty issues or Maori issues because you've sort of overdone it lately. And it was sort of started off subtle like that. And then it was no longer, don't talk about these things. This was long before the fund had ever started. Yep. And I thought, well, that's a bit odd, but maybe they want a bit of variety. Like you, I was naive and did it in good faith. And then it was, oh, you've written rather a lot about climate change. Maybe stop that, right? And mm -hmm. I'm looking at it and thinking, well, climate change is the biggest thing that's going to affect our economy, what the government is doing. It's sort of quite important. You could write about it every week because mm -hmm. it's that significant. Until I was left with nothing to write about, at which point I left. Mm. I didn't get deplatformed. I deplatformed myself. Mm. But um, this hasn't happened overnight with Labour. So this is going back 10 years. Yep. Um, but here's the good news. Hobson's pledge. pledge 
has 150,000 members. That's extraordinary. Hmm. That would be more than all the political parties have as members. Uh, well, let me be, be qualify that. Uh, On your mail list. Yeah. Mem- members is probably not the right word. They don't subscribe saying, I am a member. Yeah. No, I get that. Who, who receive our stuff and, and react to it in some way. Yeah. Yeah. So. And I mean, National Party and Labour Party may have a large mailing list, right? As compared to members. But you're a significant organisation. Yeah. So that's where the kickback's coming. How do people sign up, Don? Uh, Well, uh, the word tends to get spread almost, uh, what's the right word? Uh, By osmosis is not the right right term, but it it spreads uh, quite widely. And and, uh, no time at all, we find we've got uh, more people who, who register as supporters. Uh, in some way. So they don't formally sign a document saying, I am hereby a supporter of Hobson's Pledge, but uh, they, they're clearly identified as people who who want to receive our material. Every now and again, we cull that list to make sure that people are, who mm. don't ever open our documents, we can tell whether they're opened or not, of course. If they don't open at all, then, then we take them off the list. But um, it, the people who react in some way to our material... Well, you've got a great base there, Don, and uh, you are, you and Casey are literally doing God's work and standing up for the rights of citizenship and for a country which we should be very proud of that's colorblind and intermixes and intermarried. And it's great to look down the street or go to a sports day or go to a school. And there's absolutely no racial tension to speak of. Yeah, that's right. And it's not like we are divided, and but it's sad because the division is coming from our government and our journalists, but I repeat myself because our journalists are in the pay of the government. They're running the government's yep. line. Yeah. Don? Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having your own council moment. Let, let I, me one one final point. Please. One of the ironies of the Heipuapu report, which was advocating radical change on this racial front, written in 2019. At that time, the leader and deputy leader of National were Maori. The leader and deputy leader of New Zealand First were Maori. The deputy leader of Labour was Maori. The co-leader of the Greens was Maori, and the leader of the Act Party was Maori. To suggest that Maori somehow can't he- have their voices heard in the in the corridors of power is, of course, patent nonsense. And I think our Governor General at that stage, twenty nine. I think she was also Maori. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> and the, uh, Maori are more than sixteen percent of whatever it is of Parliament. That's true. That's right. And, of course, you feel embarrassed that you're even noting it. That's right. And the it, it, that, it should be as significant as eye colour. That, that, that list of, of political leaders who were Maori, only one of them was elected to parliament in the Maori electorate. That was Kelvin Davis. 
or the others were elected in general electorates or on the list. We are a wonderful country. Indeed. But we have to we have to support Hobson's pledge to preserve it. Thank you. Thank you, Don. Thank you for your time. That was Dr. Don Brash. Um, amazing man, because he's done so much for New Zealand, and you would think that his biggest fight of his life was to tame inflation. We had to stand against industry leaders, governments, political attacks, the pain that getting inflation under control was causing, which led to stable currency and prosperity. And you think, man, that was tough. One man taking all of that. But here he is. He's really Robin to Batman, which is Casey Costello. Um, an even bigger fight. Um, a more monstrous fight and a more significant fight. So we're very, very lucky to have Don Brash and we're very lucky to have him share his time on our show. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And coming up, we've got Politics Explained. This time, we've got our colleagues, Tane Webster and Marie Buskey, explaining for us the Maori seats, their history. What are they there for? Do we need them? Oh, big topic for the day. And remember, send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at Radio. You know how much we love hearing from you. You're listening to Politics Explained. Back to basics in the political sandpit with Rodney Hyde and Tane Webster. Hello and welcome to Reality Check Radio. This is Politics Explained, Back to Basics in the Political Sandpit with Tane Webster. Today I have a special guest in place of Rodney, Marie Buskey. Welcome, Marie. Hey, welcome, Tane. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's going to be really good. So today we're going to cover the Maori role, the difference between the Maori role and the general role, the implications of it, and your thoughts on it. Right, yeah, the Māori electorates and the Māori roles. So the Māori role's been around for a really long time. I mean, New Zealand is actually quite unusual. We've uh, Māori have had and have been part of our political structure here uh, since the, um, since around oh the seats were created all the way back in um, eighteen sixty seven so um, or even earlier than that actually they and so they've been around for a really really long time and the interesting thing I'm going to start with this and this is just to put it into context for the Māori role versus the New Zealand general role. So two roles were created, and the Māori role was created as a way for Māori to be part of the election process. And it all started because there there was a lot of fighting going on with the Northern Tribes. So one of the things I'm going to preface um, is that when it comes to Māori politics, Māori politics is much more colourful, dynamic, and diverse with opinions than regular standard New Zealand politics always has been 
okay so uh, and that comes from the tribal nature of Maoridom, and it is all based around hapu so iwi is actually a, a colonial westernized concept it's not actually a concept from from maori maori about are about hapu so that next layer back that that family structure so it's very feudalistic in the sense that it is all grown up around whanau and family and hapu and they have been in fighting um since they got here and so you sort of have to go even further back and, and look at the history of Māori colonisation of New Zealand when they arrived, because they didn't all arrive at the same time, they didn't all leave from the same place, they didn't all land in the same places. And so, you know, this has all been going on from, well, I mean, the mass migration was in the 1300s, but even the initial coupe, uh, which was around 1100-ish, it's, it's complicated. Okay, so you have to realize that. So there was a lot of fighting going on amongst those northern tribes uh, in the 1860s. So when the British were here, they were seeing this and they were thinking, well, how do we, we've, we've got this treaty signed, how do we essentially get everybody to the table? So uh, being British, they in the home of the Magna Carta and all of that, they thought, right, well, let's create this Māori role and these Māori seats to allow Māori essentially a seat at the table in the governance table. So that happened in 1867. And so four seats were created, uh, north, south, east, and west. Very, very simple. And it was only ever supposed to be temporary. Their thought was, as we'll create these seats, we will, um, it will get all the warring factions, uh, because there were these inter-Māori land wars going on, and you don't get taught about that in history. It's another conversation for another day. So that was all going on, and it gets all of those leaders back around a table under the guise of uh, um, governance and, and elections. So they did that. They created those four, and and it worked so well that they actually enshrined and entrenched it uh, four years later. So they actually made it. Uh, a permanent fixture and the original law that was written up was actually written up by a Napier MP Douglas McLean uh Don McLean rather and he's quite famous like these streets and everything named for him here so that all um he's he drew everything up in 1867 and then they enshrined it uh later on so I'm not going to go into the sort of history to and fro but to where we are currently so what we have now currently is we now have seven seats so it's grown from four to seven uh, and there are six seats in the north island and there are there has only ever been one seat in the south island the poor south they've only ever had one seat and they are divided based up on population just like the standard electoral seat so they they are a, a candidate seat like any other seat the difference being in order to vote for a candidate in that seat you have to uh, declare that you have been descended from Māori now interestingly enough around that is that you don't the candidate the candidate since 1967 doesn't themselves need to be descended from Māori so technically anybody could run as a Māori candidate however the caveat on that the expectation within those seats is whoever that candidate is that runs should have a knowledge of te reo they should have a knowledge of um uh, tikanga maori they should have knowledge of te ao maori they should have a knowledge of essentially how the entire 
protocol around Māori culture and particularly marae culture in politics runs. So it tends to disqualify anyone else outside the non-Māori. Now caveat again to that is you could have someone like Ming Foon who understands all of those things if Ming actually wanted to, now that he's resigned and not resigned and resigned and then decided he's resigned um, from his current job, if he wanted to run, for example, as a um, an MP in the Māori ward, he would be aptly qualified to do so with his experience. So that's just something, it's just one of the little interesting quirks. Uh, there's around 260 odd thousand people registered on the Māori roll total. And it was quite interesting, I dived in today because I haven't looked at them for ages. And one of the things that actually really struck me is when I was growing up with a Māori role, and the way it generally works is if you register uh, for an iwi, as a lot of us do, I've, I mean, I have, um, I'm from two iwis, from, from Ngāti Pro and Te Rawara, so I'm registered with both iwis, and I essentially do that so they're aware of where people are, and uh, also I did it, actually, I did it when my children were born because I wanted to have the ability, if there was opportunities for them, that they could draw on that. Uh, Ngāti Pro, I'd, I'd actually been registered with for a lot, lot longer, and once you register with an iwi, that's when you used to get sent out at election time, you would get sent out uh, an option to be on the Māori with the general role. And back in the day when I was doing it, um, not that I've ever been enrolled on the Māori role, but the option would be is you would, if you chose to enrol on the Māori role, you had to be there for five years. So you could only switch in or out every five years which is, was a weird number. I don't know why they created it, considering our election cycle is three yearly. You would have thought that they would have it congruent with the election cycle, but it's not, or it wasn't. It was every five. That has now just changed. So law has now been passed as of the 31st of March this year that you can actually um, switch on and off that role whenever you want. The only time you can't switch in or out is three months outside it from, from an election. So with this upcoming election, you need to fix yourself on that role by the 13th of July of this year. And, that's, and so if you want to go on the role or off the role, that's when that decision needs to be made. And if there's a by-election, obviously, that you have to, um, there's a date set in sand that you can't switch on and off. But it's now that the, gar the barn door is fully open and un unhitched and uh, Māori can bounce around uh, between the Māori and general roles. So why would someone be on the Māori role? Well, traditionally, they were there because that was a place that they had a candidate that specifically understood issues that were quite unique to Māori. And you had a candidate that was intimately aware of those issues. Nearly nine times out of 10, because these uh, seats are regional, it was somebody who was local, so they were deeply ingrained and tied to that region by blood. It was almost like having a family, a wider family representative for them in parliament. And to a greater or lesser extent, that hasn't changed, and particularly in the more rural electorates. Uh, so Mika Whaiteri uh, would be a good example of that with Ikarara Fiti. So Māori electoral seats and the Māori role has enabled, has also been like a trust exercise between Māori and uh, the government of the day and has allowed them representation and, and a voice. So that's sort of a, a, a bit of the history. Now things have changed quite rapidly where the Māori seats are involved and there's lots of little quirks 
with Māori seats. So one of the um, interesting things with the Māori role initially is the Māori role, particularly now, and this is the numbers that I looked at um, earlier, back in the day when I was first aware of it, the Māori role was something that a lot of older Māori were on. So it was it tended to skew older. Now, the skew, the vast majority of um, the weight, sort of 60, 40 on the Māori role, is actually that under 40. So they're much, much younger. And there has been a, a tremendous push by particularly um, the Labour government to get young voters enrolled. And if you're a young voter with Māori descent, they've really encouraged you to go on that Māori role. And we could get into the cynical reasons of why that is the case, but that is something that's happened and it's worked. So the vast, so at least more than 60% of people on that Māori role currently are under 40, so they're young. Uh, all the seats roughly have around the same uh, number of people in them, anywhere between 34, 35,000 up to about 38,000 uh, voters. But that in itself is, um, you're actually dealing with quite a small voter base in a way. So that makes those seats, those seven seats, which all have representation in the House, if you win one of those seats, gives you that ability to coattail in on your party list. Every is at what, 1.2%? Um, you can bring in an extra MP. Those, and, and I think this is where people forget, these Māori seats are incredibly powerful to actually set up representation and the balance of MP in the House. I think people realise how vitally important that they are and how vile they are. It, it's all over the show. At the moment, the um, all bar one are held by Labour. In the last few elections, it's been very strong in that, that case. But that's not always been the case. In the modern canon, um, I mean, in 1996, for example, uh, there were, I think we had um, five seats in 1996. How many, um, do you know who, they were all held by one party. Do you know who, Tane? I did my research as well, Start and I think it's New Zealand first. It was no? New Zealand first. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was New Zealand first. And, you know, that's one of those things that people forget. And it was the first time, you know, you've got, you can, you've got to give it to Winston. He's clever. The other, what, the other thing that was key about a 1996 election was, political quiz start of 10. Don't know, sorry. Don't know. It was our first election under MMP. Right. So think about that, right? So it, that's when New Zealand first was at its greatest power because, I mean, Winston, uh, he held Tauranga on the general role, but they won all five Māori seats. Now, that's huge. They had strong candidates in those areas. They held all of those seats, which then meant that's why New Zealand was so strong in that coalition um, back at that time because off the basis of having those five candidate seats, they were able to bring more in on the list at that time. So that's why those Māori seats are actually, if you are a minor party, um, those if you're going to win a seat, you're more likely to win the seat in the Māori electorates. Now, the other interesting little quirk between Māori seats and general seats, the situation we have currently, right, Northland. So Northland, from a general role perspective, is, I think, going to be one of the battlegrounds of this election. And I think it's going to be one of those places uh, where massive decisions for the entire country are going to focus on that single electorate. And the reason for that is we've got very strong candidates running in there, and we've got uh, small party candidates all duking it out. So you've got Willow Jean Prime for Northland, you've got Mark Cameron for ACT, who's currently a list MP, very strong performer for ACT. ACT are surging in the rural vote, and a good number of those voters are rural. 
You've got uh, the national MP's name just eludes me for the minute. Um, then you've got Matt King, obviously, who was the national MP for that electorate for one term and then missed out on specials the second time round, running for Democracy New Zealand. And then you've got um, Uncle Shane. Uncle Shane from New Zealand first, Shane Jones. He's also running there, plus he's a Green candidate and a couple of other rats and mice. Northland is... Northland is where they're going to be duking it out. And you've got a lot of people on the uh, non-Marxist side of the fence, so i.e. not the Greens and not Willowgene, who can essentially split that vote. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that all sits really well and good for Willowgene. Now, she, from what I understand, since she's had the ascension in the Māori caucus, she is now sitting pretty. Uh, she's not there very often, but in a way she doesn't need to be. So Northland is an area that you need to watch. Now, 38-odd thousand, or, yeah, 38-odd thousand Māori voters do not vote in the Northland electorate. They vote in the Te Taukarau electorate, which is currently held by Calvin Day. Calvin, Calvin. Uh, and he, I'm, I haven't actually checked into the city. I'm assuming he's standing again. Now, they will be duking it out on the general role, and it's that's one to watch. So Matt King is putting all his eggs in the Northland basket. And he has said this on record. I think he said this on interview with Paul Brennan in the breakfast show. I've heard him say it elsewhere. He genuinely believes that he is going to win that seat because he's got a good rapport with the voters up there. He's put the work in and he knows them. Now, traditionally, general elector voters, general role voters, tend not to vote for the person quite so much they tend to vote for the party so if they are a blue rosette person they'll vote for whoever the national candidate is you could stand mickey mouse in there and they'll vote for mickey mouse that is how they vote they vote for the party so they vote their candidate vote as if it were a party vote that's and that's how they've always done it they won't split it they won't change it they will keep it the same and he's got to fight against that and it's and it's just fact it's just how it is the Māori electorates, though, mm -mm, that doesn't stand at all. They, they vote very, very much based on the candidate, not the party. So this is what Mika Whaiteri is looking to leverage now that she has uh, walker jumped from the, Māori, um, from the Labour Party into the Māori Party. And she's looking at holding a Karaafati. Now that was a safe seat for Labour for eons. I, I've never, I mean, since 1996, uh, I think once it flipped back from New Zealand first, it was um, been Labour ever since. And Parakura Horomia was the MP there for the longest time. And he, I've got a soft spot for Parakura. He was a very nice man. Now Parakura pretty much he anointed Becker as his. Um, successor and she essentially walked into that seat if Parakura said this is who I think you should this is my you know this is this is who I want to my ascendant and they did so she has that pretty much that seat wrapped up now unlike other seats where you have a volunteer base and people around that work in the candidacy and keep things going for that seat Māori seats it's all about nepotism a lot of that party apparatus is all family based, right? So when Mecca jumped shipped from Labour to the Māori Party, it wasn't just Mecca that jumped. It was Mecca and her entire Fano 
infrastructure around who retaining that seat. So Labour now need to announce a candidate into that seat and have to recreate the entire machinery of human capital for that candidate to create that seat because they've all gone. They've all gone with Auntie Mecca. So it's, it is something that is quite unique to those Māori seats. So she stands a really, really good chance of stealing that seat away from Labour because they will vote for Mecca, not for Labour. And, and, that it, and we have seen that um, time and again. Tariana Turia, she did it when she left in two, um, 2004. She, left, uh, she was a minister, she left a Labour that forced a by-election. In the by-election, she won that electorate. She was um, Tita, uh, where was she? She was Tita Haurua, and that's over, that's Taranaki. So she was over there. She won that seat with 90% of the vote. 90% of the vote because they voted for Tariana. And of course, she created the Māori Party, and the Māori Party then went on to have tremendous success. Uh, they got up to four seats in 2005, and then they sort of had a cycle where they were um, rebuilding. And then, of course, Wairiki changed up over at this last election with the flip flop between Labour and Tamati Coffee and uh, uh, Rawiri Waititi. So there's lots of sort of moving and, and, and shimmying around. Um, our friends up again at Te, uh, Te Tokoro, uh, that was um, Honi. And then Honi in 2011, there was uh, over the foreshore and seabed legislation. Honi had his, there was lots of brouhaha going on there. He left. He then ran as um, under Mana. He won that seat. There was sort of an agreement, and and that allowed him to do that. So there's lots of, as I said, it's really dynamic. The Māori seats are really, really dynamic, and ignore them at your peril. Like if you're sitting on the side of the fence, who think that well, these seats shouldn't exist. They shouldn't be there. They should be gone. Well, they're not. So until if and when they disappear, and I don't think they will. I don't think they'll go anywhere any time, certainly in the current political climate. Um, they are really powerful. You know, that's seven seats that are very elastic, can change all the time. And unless you are up to date with the cultural nuance within Māori, there is, a, to me, that's actually some of the most exciting places with the election. Sorry, I've talked a lot, Tane. Very sorry. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. That's right. So you just touched on it there, though. I think some people want to know your thoughts on this. They want to know our thoughts on it. Do you think the Maori electorates should continue to exist? It's 2023 now. I know from when I looked into it that, you know, National Act and New Zealand, first of all, opposed it, Act continued to oppose it at various times. Yeah. What do you sit on that? Um, so National Spec tracked on that. So National have, um, yeah. They're trying to please everybody, uh, which I don't. I mean, look, I, if you're going to make a position, make it. That's what I respect Act for. They've made it. New Zealand First actually is the one that I think have approached it most realistically. They want a referendum on it, which to me makes perfect sense. Uh, but of course, it depends on the starting point and how you decide on that referendum. Because you've got to remember, I mean, at the moment, only around 14% of people identify as Māori, and not all of those are on the Māori roll, right? In fact, the vast majority aren't on the Māori roll. If you'd asked me this question five years ago, 
I would have said to you, no, I'm quite comfortable with the Māori state staying because I see the value having grown up in a predominantly Māori community that those Māori seats play. So they act as a conduit to those, particularly those rural communities who for them to have a voice in governance, in a structure that with somebody that can translate because how the Māori structure, and you've got to remember Māori have their own set of internal governance, right? So you've got their, they've got their whole Māori parliament that they run at Waitangi. That's what the Waitangi celebrations are about. And they have hui and they meet regularly. They have a lower house, they have an upper house. They have the country divided out into rohi. They have different representatives and they use that to vote on their own Māori issues. So that, that's a whole nother conversation for a whole nother time, but they already have that structure there. But this gives them a seat at the um, New Zealand Corporation table, the, you know, the, at a national level. So, and there are issues that are very specific to them. And if you have, a, and it, well, this is all candidate dependent, if you have a really good candidate that is focused on those issues for their electorate, well, then they're an electorate just like any other electorate so they're able and you've got when you've got an electorate like um, the east coast for example which is a geographically a massive area Ikaroarafati also overlaps that entire area plus comes down here through to, to southern Hawke's bay it then just means that those people in up in the that part of east coast a good chunk of those voters um on the Māori role. So they then have that representation to all of those issues, all of those issues that are specific to them. Now, the caveat is, in the last five years, the Māori political apparatus has now been hijacked by activists, particularly those in the Maoist and Marxist tradition. A good chunk of them are with um, the Labour Party, but they do exist in the Māori Party. And that goes back um, particularly, it's sort of kind of started in the 70s, really started gaining traction in the 80s. We saw some of that uh, crop up through the 90s, but it really, there things like critical theory, Marxism, neo-Marxism, and critical social justice ideas have infiltrated and are masquerading behind the mask of Te Ao Māori. And they, there are those academics and activists who have used that in order to conflate and elevate Māori ideas where they never, were never intended to go. I mean, if you were to ask Aparananata about what he thinks of what's going on today, I can tell you right now, he would not be down with it, um, particularly around the treaty. I'm I'm actually torn because I see the value in the Māori seats. I really do for Māori, but they're being they're being hijacked. I think by activists within there, and there are a lot of really concerned Māori around that. And whilst they've now allowed that barn door, they've unlatched that barn door, and they're allowing people to move both ways. The assumption, I think, is they're trying to push as many, that's why there's so many young people there, they're trying to push as many young university-aged Māori onto that role who have been indoctrinated with these ideas, 
told that this is the Māori way when it's not the Māori way. They've, they're pushing them into that role in order to control those and uh, have extra influence on them. And then you've got people like Karina Shields. I spoke to her a couple of weeks ago, and she's really actively encouraging people to come off that Māori role to give them choice because all of a sudden, as Māori, that candidate that you're voting for isn't actually got your best interests at heart anymore not like it used to be so yeah it is going to again most dynamic seats there's this is something to watch and i think if you're not up to play on what's going on in those seats it's easy just to think they're bubbling along off to the side and you just sort of largely ignore them but they have the power to not only turn but decide in an election and i think this election is going to be one that could potentially be won or lost in those maori seats mm. Just a bonus question. Do you think there's not an issue with equal representation? Because I sort of do. You know, there's, I agree, you know, at one point in time that it served a purpose, uh, but then to do it now, to continue to have them now when Maori are pretty part of New Zealand society, and it's not like we're going to be having French seats for those who descend from the French explorers that were here or the, or the or Irish seats, you know, we're not going yeah. to do things like that. So, so let's look at it this way. I mean, that was the original intention, right? So when they set these up, they were set up to be temporary in the hope that once Māori sort of assimilated more, that uh, they would then, you know, they would disappear. There's that sort of talk, and I have heard this, and they'll say, oh, yeah, but it's, you know, one, one vote. But you've got to remember, if you're enrolled on the Māori roll, you can't double dip. You can't double dip and go back and then, so here I am sitting in the um, Napier electorate, the Ahuriri electorate. I can't turn around and vote both for Ikaroa Rāpiri and a Napier candidate. I can only pick one. So from a, uh, a voting perspective, if you're on the Māori roll, I actually think your choice is more restricted. That's part of the reason why I never enrolled in the Māori role. There were two reasons. One, I didn't like the idea of being locked in across to essentially two election cycles because a lot can happen in this country. What happened if I was in one and then in the second election cycle, particularly with the dynamics in Māori electorates, that the next year there was no candidate whatsoever that represented me and I got really annoyed. I'm trapped. I couldn't get out. Okay? So whereas now you can um, people can move on and off those roles but you're still only voting in a single electorate so what you then have are those electorates which in a way are representational to the voters that sit in that electorate so you could actually argue it i'm being playing devil's advocate here you could argue it the other way that the maori seats are vastly more representative from a candidacy point of view and from a, a, a voter point of view than any other seat. So it is, yeah, I can see why there, um, particularly with the co-governance stuff and, and all of those sort of heated elements that are around um, where, where they, I think they get the two confused between over-representation of Māori. Like, I mean, if you look at the number of seats 
the number of Māori seats versus the number of general electorate seats, right? It is, it's about 8%. So it is, sits below what that number is. I do think that there is an overrepresentation because, of course, not 100% of Māori that identifies Māori of the 14 odd percent in this country are on the Māori roll. In fact, I think it's, I actually didn't, I think it was something around 40% of them are. So it was, you know, 261,000 people. But for those 261,000 people, Māori issues is what is really important to them. So they want to be somewhere where they know that their vote and their voice is going to be represented. So I think that there are, it's when these ideologies creep in, and I think there's a knee-jerk, particularly at the moment, uh, there is a wedge that has been driven between Māori and Pākehā and between New Zealanders, Aotearoa and New Zealanders. There's all of this that's been driven, and you've got to see who's hammering that wedge in. And it's not, and it's and it's the ideologues within that Māori elite, in that Māori caucus, because at the end of the day, they're only interested in two things, and that's money and power, and it's certainly not the Māori people. That's my opinion. Great way to wrap it up, Marie. Thank you so much for everyone who's listened in. If you have any feedback, questions, ideas, suggestions, things we you want us to comment on, send us an email at inbox at realitycheck.radio or send us a text at 2057. And uh, we look forward to future episodes of Politics Explained. Thanks, Marie. You're welcome, Tane. You're listening to Politics Explained. Back to basics in the political sandpit with Rodney Hyde and Tane Webster. That was the wonderful, witty, smart Marie Buskey talking politics with Tane Webster. Marry seats. Boy, <laughs> we don't need an apartheid system. We never needed it in New Zealand. Well, not since the 1870s anyway. Uh, you're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them. But practising them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR. Reality check radio. Rational discussion. Common sense. And open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. 
or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Send me a text, uh, 2057, or send me an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Well, we have a fantastic guy uh, on the line now. Uh, It's Barry Brill. Good morning, Barry. Good morning to you, Rodney. Well, I, I admire you so much because you just, you're the energizer bunny. You just keep on keeping on uh, writing the most insightful and amazing reports on the climate change hypothesis. And you do so soberly and reasonably. And every time I read one, I think that's it. We can all pack our bags and not worry about this anymore. And yet still, the madness continues. Well, that's the frustrating aspect of uh, writing on climate change. You put out certain challenges. uh, There's clearly a problem. uh, And there's no response at all. Nobody in authority responds. The media ignore it. uh, And uh, then you'll get another uh, spate of reports about a storm somewhere in the world and how climate change is making uh, the world worse, and you'll hear that a thousand times, and you'll hear no discussion of the issues that have been raised. No. Now, I'm, we're going to cover off, we're going to see if we can cover off the whole climate change story through you, because I don't know of anyone who's across it quite like you. you, Just for listeners, Barry Bull writes erudite reports that um, professional climate change uh, experts uh, take notice of. And when we say experts, experts who uh, counter the narrative or sceptical uh, of the theory that there's, there's a catastrophe about to happen, but he's a very serious uh, researcher in this regard. He's not a dilettante. But, Barry, how did you first get into this climate change business? Because your background, you are a minister way back in the day with Sir Robert Muldoon. Uh, you're a lawyer by training. And yet here you are uh, writing these erudite reports on climate change. How did you get into climate change? Well, uh, right back uh in the early 80s, I was uh, Associate Minister of Science and Technology, and there were already uh, concerns at that time about global cooling. Uh, and there were some suggestions of the possibility of global warming. Uh, that didn't uh, affect me as much as the energy side of things. I was, um, I was involved uh, in the industry. I was involved in the electricity industry. I was involved as a director of Petrocorp Exploration in the oil and gas uh, exploration industry. Uh, And so uh, when we started running up against constant references to the need to uh, change our energy portfolio, uh, I started taking an interest in that. 
It was probably around about 2005, 2006. There was uh, the supposed to be uh, a complete resolution at the Copenhagen uh, COP uh, of the UNFCCC uh, in 2009. Uh, and so it was about... Uh, a year before that, uh, that I uh, I went to hear a um, a presentation by Professor Chris DeFratis of He's Auckland University, and uh, DeFratis was a skeptic, and he certainly had a convincing story to tell, uh, and yes, that got me started. And he was a I'm trying to think was he a what 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 was his field. Christopher he, he was skeptical about the uh, the whole uh, well not about the greenhouse gas theory but about it being more than a relatively trivial contributor yes. uh, to to our climate uh, and uh, he was the editor of an international science journal. Yes. Uh, and in that role, he came under attack from the the Climate Gate uh, people, who uh, who worked very hard to have him uh, sacked as the editor, uh, and uh, and they succeeded in doing so. So that, that was a another thing which motivated a lot of us to to get involved because it was a uh, it was an obvious uh, pack attack. Uh, by so-called climate scientists in the US and the UK. It's It was uh, those of us that have been around this issue and been following it for some years um, have witnessed what we're seeing now more generally uh, because climate scientists who were sceptical were deplatformed way back, as you say, 20 years ago. They were being um, uh dismissed as lunatics and not funded, correct? Yes, that's right. And they couldn't get published in the all of the main journals. I had that same problem myself uh, where uh, I uh, was a co-author with Christopher Otis, uh on a paper on the uh, New Zealand temperature record. And uh, we uh, sent that off to a journal uh, who set it out for um, peer review. And uh, then, uh, obviously, we, the editor came under a great deal of pressure uh, not to publish the article. And so uh, he was fairly candid about it, that it just wasn't in the interest of the journal. Uh, so we had to go to another journal. And there we went through the same process uh, and uh, despite having good peer reviews, uh, he had one bad peer review, which turned out came from Newa. Uh, and uh, so the editor said, no, it was too difficult for him to uh, to proceed with this. So we had to go to a third journal. Now, that sort of problem is faced by everybody who wants to record any research that doesn't Hue to the narrative, to the central narrative that's um, uh, that's run by, well, not by the IPCC, but by climate activists associated mm. with it. Now, 
So 2005, thereabouts, you started to get into this. And you didn't get into it like I do, which is, you know, I just read. You got right into it. I mean, you did original research. What was motivating you to get to the bottom of all of this, to commit such an enormous amount of time and intellectual effort? I think the most notable thing was that so many didn't make sense and weren't addressed, and there seemed to be this deliberate cognitive dissonance where you suspected that everybody knew that this was a uh, an unsupportable statement, uh, but uh, nobody was prepared to say so. Uh, another thing that happened around that time was that um, uh, Lord Lawson, uh, Nigel Lawson, uh, came to New Zealand at the behest of the Business Roundtable and gave a talk which was uh, headed uh, An Appeal to Reason. Uh, and he went through essentially the argument that we would all be better off if there was some climate change mm-hmm. uh, and that if there was an extra, say, one degree average across the globe or even two degrees or perhaps three, uh, that uh, there would be, from an economic point of view, a win-win. Everybody would be better off. Uh, and, uh, and of course, he was able to back that up with, uh, with uh, all the necessary research. Now, Nigel Lawson, you may remember, was the longest-serving chancellor of the uh, United Kingdom. Uh, and... Uh, uh, and Margaret Thatcher's Chancellor. Uh, I met him when he was in that role, and uh, he was very senior to me, but uh, I was most impressed with him then. So I went to his uh, address at the Business Roundtable, and I was most impressed with uh, that presentation. He subsequently extended that uh, speech into a book, a small book, called An Appeal to Reason, and I read that a couple of times. I still have it on the shelf, uh, and uh, uh, I thought it was very difficult indeed to disagree with what uh, Nigel Lawson had to say. He subsequently established a, uh, a think tank in Britain called the Global Warming Policy Foundation, uh, and has probably been one of the most uh, authoritative voices calling in question the uh, the policies that have been pursued, rather more emphasis on the policies than the science, uh, but have been a very effective check on uh, policymaking in the UK. Unfortunately, Nigel Lawson died only a few months ago. Yes, indeed. But the global policy... Global Warming Policy Foundation carries on. And he, I had the great fortune to listening to him speak too and to uh, having him uh, for dinner. And he was just such a gentleman. That was another fortune? Yes. No, I felt very, very blessed. Um, 
And it was because he was, uh, I happened to be in Queenstown and he had wanted to come to Queenstown and they wanted him to be, you know, looked after for dinner. And I, I, so I took him out for dinner and um, it was just wonderful. I didn't pester him too much because, you know, I felt like he wanted to be, have a relaxing time, but that said, he was a great conversationalist and, and a, an amazing man. He did tell me that he felt it quite strange that these days his daughter was more famous than he was. Yes, she is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because he said it used to be he'd be walking down the street and everyone would know him, but now everyone knows Nigella. And um, who's that old guy with Nigella? Um, but he he was he was a wonderful man. Well, I I have a do not to the same extent. I recall I used to be a greenie, and I worked out that this climate stuff was off off the rails in the late 80s. And I remember it got a boost. I was in the United States for a year studying and I got invited to a conference and I'm going to say it was 91 or 92. And Al Gore had just released his book called Earth and the Balance. And there was a seminar put on uh, where speakers spoke and debunked it. And I greatly recall Richard Lindzen speaking, and you'll be aware that he's, you know, one of the great names of climate skepticism. And he got up and totally destroyed the hypothesis in that calm, cool way of a man who spent his life studying um, climate and what drives it, what we know and what we don't. And we were all of us, group of professors, driving back after this. And I proudly said, well, I don't think this thing's got legs and is anything to worry about. <laughs> because it's clearly nonsense. And one of the professors said, oh no, he said, I think this is gonna, this is, this is, this is, this is gonna get serious. Well, who would have ever known? Because Right from the start, it didn't have a proper basis, Barry. Well, I know. And Richard Lindzen, about that time, Rodney, would have been in his heyday, uh, where he would have probably been regarded as the number one expert in the world on climate science. And he, of course, was a lead author in the first IPCC Working Group One report, but he became sceptical. The more he went into it, the less sure he was of some of the basic tenets, Uh, and so he had to rapidly get sidelined. Although as a uh, uh, professor at MIT, uh, he couldn't be silenced, uh, and uh, he continued to do his own research. Uh, and uh, I've uh, heard him speak, and I've met him. I've dined with him, as you did with uh, with Nigel Lawson, and uh, he's a giant brain. He's a giant brain. Uh, yeah, very uh, an extraordinary person. And now, he he has a complete understanding, I think, of this topic. Yes. Now, um, one of the things that. I'm constantly shocked by 
respectable people, politicians and so-called scientists who cheat. And they cheat on their argument and they cheat on their numbers. And I am highly offended by that. Like, I love science. I love the pursuit of truth. I love how we've discovered things and the mystery of life and the mystery of the universe and how wonderful science is. And to see science in the newspaper where it's lie, it's lies, literally lies, is something that I'm shocked at. Now, you were associated with a group that did the seven station series in New Zealand, and then it became the 11 station series. And I found that the most extraordinary experience of my time in politics. Because you can explain it to us, but you came up with, here's what happens if you don't massage the data. You get no change in temperature. Here's what knee was done. Jim Salinger, massage the data. And I thought, well, there must be a very good explanation for this massaging of data. (laughs) And as we dug into it, well, as you dug into it, Barry, there was none. Walk us through that whole experience, please. Well, the the figures that we were using didn't seem to make sense for a number of reasons. They were saying that New Zealand temperature had increased one degree from about 1850 through to uh, 2000. Uh, and yet the world at that time had only increased by about 0.8 of a degree. And they were themselves on their website pointed out that because we are surrounded by ocean uh, and the oceans don't warm as fast as land masses do, uh, that we would be behind the average of the rest of the world. We would expect to be about 0.3. Some would argue more, but Neewa's website said we should be 0.3 less. But if you took the the 0.8 of the world average and took 0.3 off that, we should have seen a warming of half a degree, not one degree. And there's a significant difference between the two. And then we discovered that the one degree had been devised by uh, uh, James Salinger. Uh, who hadn't done a scientific paper behind it. He had just put it up on the NERO website. So we wanted to get to grips with that. Um, Another thing I recall is that we were one of the first countries uh, in the 1850s to keep a very good um, record of temperatures in New Zealand. So in the period between 1850 and 1860, we had temperatures across both islands recorded annually 
and it was all in the Turnbull Library. And those temperatures were uh, averaged out across New Zealand at 13.1 degrees expressed in Celsius. Uh, and yet now we're running at 12.8 degrees. Uh, 150 years later, <laughs> so how could we have gone up by one degree? Uh, so we were unable to, I wrote to the chairman of NEWA, I wrote to the chief executive first, and then I wrote to the chairman uh, and re received no information at all. So I asked you if you could um, put down a uh, question for written answer uh, in parliament, and you may recall that the answer you got was very evasive. Mm -hmm, I do. So, so we then asked follow-up questions, and they were very evasive. Uh, and then it turned out that uh, there was no paper, uh, that it was there was no backing to the figure at all. And so Niwa then gave an under eventually gave an undertaking in Parliament, but this was after about. Uh, something like 30 written questions uh, over a period of maybe 12 months, uh, they finally gave an undertaking that they would really do the research on the uh, seven-station basis to find out what the temperature was. So they did that research uh, a year, and when it came out, uh, it was riddled with... Uh, with errors, uh, it was a, an attempt to whitewash the original paper, uh, and of course it wasn't easy to do that. So they uh, made up uh, a system of massaging the figures, which has never been used by anybody, as far as I'm aware, anybody in the world, before or since. Uh, and uh, and I think they they admit to that. They say proudly that we have found a New Zealand method uh, which is best suited to our conditions. Uh, but of course, when you are simply looking at how to apply statistics to data, there is no New Zealand method. There's a right method or a wrong one, uh, and uh, and and they pursued a wrong one. Now, correct so me if I go. Correct me if I go wrong here, uh, Barry, but they had seven stations, that is to say weather stations in New Zealand going back to, say, 1865 or something, and they had data points for each year, and what they were doing was adjusting those data points so that the supposedly you'd be comparing oranges with oranges. However, as I understand it, when you looked at it and you took the raw numbers, the line was flat. And that the adjustments all shifted the temperature down from what was recorded pre-1940, or most of them down, and most of them up after 1940. So it tilted the curve. Their warming, the one degree warming that Neva was speaking of and still does from the seven station series was entirely an artifact of the adjustments. Have yes, entirely. Right? You, you've got it dead right with the only exception 
that the uh, the tilting point, the balance, was in 1970. 70, Everything okay. there, there wasn't, in fact, there weren't many adjustments made during the 1940-70 period anyhow, okay. but there were a couple and, and they were downwards. And then the ones after 2070 were upwards. Now that, if you were setting out to tilt the balance, that's exactly what you do. Push down on the left side and push up on the right side. And that's so, what they did. <laughs> so can you imagine, listeners, our horror? And I mean, I was a very small part of this. The horror of discovering that our scientific institution paid for by the taxpayer, overseen by the politicians, had a data set that said no, no, no global warming. But if you do these adjustments, yes, there's global warming. So the whole thing rested on not what was measured but the adjustments to what was measured. So it was entirely an artifact. And so naturally, you'd ask, well, how were these adjustments done? Now, again, if I recall correctly, Barry, and I, I funnily enough, we've got into this, was so it so upset me. As I recall, didn't they say they'd lost the reasons for the adjustments on some old computer system? Yes, that's right. They did. They said that the calculations were on the Victoria University uh, computer system and they had changed their computer and so all the data uh, were no longer available. Uh, and uh, then subsequently the, they said that they had followed a particular methodology which was uh, – Set out in a in a paper which we called RS eighty four that was published in nineteen eighty four, uh, and uh, that was a good methodology, uh, but it was effectively a methodology that pointed out that Selinger's earlier methodology had flaws. So Newis says that they are now applying the nineteen eighty four methodology, and we were able to show that they were not. So at this stage, you conclude that they were making it up. I did conclude that. I'm I still concluded. quite sure that is the case. And then at some stage, they came up with an 11-station the uh, series. But every step of the way was this ad hoc theorizing and fudging of data to produce the conclusion that they were telling New Zealand is the science. Yes, the 11 station uh, series was a, a disaster. Uh, the That arrived at the exact same figure as the seven station series by dint of bringing stations in at a particular year. Like there were 11 stations Many of them were operating since the 1920s, but Salinger brought one in in 1932, another one in in 1947, another one in in 1938, and he balanced these until he got the result that he was looking for. Uh, the, as you 
say that cheating is rife. And you find it in so many different aspects of the topic, because as I recall, you required as part of the confidence and supply agreement in, was it 2009, that the government undertake a fully costed cost-benefit study. Mm. Uh, and then there were, there were, it was effectively confessed that you couldn't do a cost-benefit study, but they'd do some computer modeling instead. You never got your cost-benefit study. We're spending literally billions of dollars on global warming policy now, and yet, even though they tried, because uh, it was a government promise to the ACT Party, they tried to show that there was more benefit than cost. They couldn't do so. No. No. It yet was, we spend uh, the billions anyhow. No, I um I'll never forget that experience, Barry, with you. It was a great privilege. And I was unable to spend the time that I would have liked to or not to to have. And um I wasn't actually going to discuss it with you on air, but it's so germane to what we're seeing around the world. And funny enough. I could imagine the Americans cheating, scientists cheating. I could imagine the UK scientists cheating. But I couldn't imagine it happening in New Zealand. And I also couldn't imagine, we had a famous meeting. I don't think you were there. In Nick Smith's office, he was the minister of something or other. And Wayne Mapp was the minister responsible for NEWA. And they brought Niwa in, and we had some on our side, uh, one of whom was a very elderly gentleman um, who since passed away, whose name escapes me, who wasn't allowed into the meeting. I remember that, uh, and I, the elderly gentleman's name escapes me at the moment as well, but of course he was a climate science of many, many years' experience. Yes. So he wasn't, he was literally forbade by Nick Smith and Wayne Mapp from coming to the meeting to question Niwa about this policy. We were allowed in with a couple, and this poor elderly gentleman had came down on the bus to the beehive at night for this meeting. And these are Niwa officials, and Wayne Mapp and Nick, Nick Smith just, well, bullshitted there's no other word for it and you you, you wanted to shout after and i could never i've never understood this barry what is in it for them why, why? i i it's very hard to understand I, it seems to be like a religion yes uh, that uh they have seen the light, uh, and if you haven't, then uh, uh, then uh, there's not much we can do about you. Uh, so we just talk Being, between ourselves with those who have seen the light. And those that haven't seen the light will burn at the stake? Well, we, we will burn at the stake. Yes, they must be burned at the stake. Heretics must be rooted out. And, and uh, we, ha we have redemption. 
by getting rid of fossil fuels and flagellate ourselves on on our back, or better yet, we flagellate we flagellate the poor and we stay we stay in our private jets, and we have our teenage what is that word saints or prophets amongst us, the Greta Thunbergs who can arrive on Earth, who well, the, a, the seer, the prophetess, the seer, the prophetess, and she commands the world as a high school dropout, stupid, comes out with the most inane and stupid things, and the world leaders fawn at her feet and rush to get their picture taken with her. Now, that's a religion. Michael Crichton uh gave a speech in 2003 uh, in which he he said environmentalism was a religion, but the speech was all about climate change. Uh, and he went through so many different aspects of it, which were a direct analogue with Christianity, uh, and uh, concluded that with the decline that we have had uh, Christianity has dominated our uh, thinking about matters that we don't fully understand uh, for a couple of thousand years. Uh, it is now on the wane, and so we have to invent something to take its place. Uh, and it has many of the same characteristics, uh, but now uh, we have climate change because we no longer have Christianity. Now, that speech created a, uh, a whole lot of interest in 2003. I've tried to uh, uh, refer to it in subsequent things that I've written, uh, like op-eds. Uh, but if you do try to mention it, you'll make sure your op-ed is not going to be published, not in our mainstream media. And just for listeners who may not know, Michael Crichton was a, a doctor uh, he was a, well, it's hard to cover off. He was, I think he's the only person ever to have a number one TV series. He did that ER, which was a very yes. popular TV program. He did Jurassic Park. He wrote that book, I think. Am I right? Yes, you're right. Um, he, and he, there was some other movie. So he had, he, he, he had a number one. That's why he had a number one best-selling book. He had a number one movie and a number one TV series. The guy was a genius. Yes, and he was a director of the movie uh, and a director of the TV series to start with. And a medical doctor. And a medical doctor, right. It was just, you sort of, you think he was like an Elon Musk figure that you sort of feel they're not mortal, that they have this um, extraordinary ability and like, Back in 2003 or four, he was spotting this. And I'm annoyed at myself because I spent so much time arguing the numbers and arguing the theory. And it's so complicated and the models. And you've done this to the nth degree. And then you realize. That's irrelevant because you're talking to religious zealots, actually. 
Uh, yes, that's it's true. And uh, I uh, I wrote a piece really recently in which I was criticising uh, Mr. Luxton, Chris Luxton, who says, I believe change. <coughs> he doesn't say, I think climate no. change is happening. He doesn't say, the science has this to say. Instead, he says, I believe. And I heard him do it again uh, a few days ago, saying that the National Party believes in climate change and the National Party is deeply committed to climate change. Now, do you say that about gravity? No. Do you say that about any other aspect of science? So it's far more a religion, and at least an ideology, uh, than yes, well, and it's getting less and less to do with science. It's a faith. And when you say, I believe, you're saying, you know, this is my cosmology. Yes. Um, and, yes. of course, uh, we always thought that we were talking to scientists who were looking at the data and reaching conclusions. And not only were they massaging the data, to get the conclusion that they wanted, even when that was pointed out, Barry, absolutely no shame, no embarrassment, and no consequence. They just steamrolled on and continued. With the support of their board and yes. the support of uh, politicians yes, uh, and uh, the support of the media. So and it's Mr. very difficult to crack that uh, uh, armour when it's uh, so widespread. Yeah, and and with the media totally on board. We saw a similar thing, of course, with COVID, um, and it was much more intense because you couldn't question that. Um, you couldn't wonder about whether locking down was the smartest thing. It was just had to be done um, without question and we're we're increasingly getting into that sort of world where i actually wrote a piece saying that i felt sorry for the climate change uh activists because they'd been completely outplayed by the covid activists who'd actually had shut down had shut down the economy um but it's 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 that same sort of um relentless uh not brooking of any questioning and i find it fascinating because i read a lot about world war ii and even in world war ii you were allowed to question it well i uh heard uh your interview with elizabeth rata uh, yes. a week or so ago i must say it was one of the best things i've ever heard in a podcast I love that. Uh, and that explained a lot when she, uh, early in the piece, pointed out that academia got taken over by postmodern theory uh, back from starting from the 70s, but really getting underway in the 1990s. Uh, and under postmodern theory, uh, there is no objective truth. 
Mm. Uh, everything is your truth or my truth uh, or a point of view. Uh, and so this opened it up to there's Matau Rangi truth, truth, there's there's uh, climate truth, there's whatever truth uh, strikes you as uh, probably being right. Uh, and the fact that you can prove something with mathematical proof doesn't isn't enough. No. Science isn't enough. So now there is no objective truth. And uh, Professor Rata went on to say there were two other um, influences. And I remember the next one was Marxist critical theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the case of Marx, it was uh, class, uh, class war. Uh, but uh, it was based on the the point that the, the the critical factor was that the world is divided into the oppressors and the oppressed. And I think that happened with climate change is that if there is no objective truth, then you can like the idea or not. You can, as uh, Chris Luxton does, believe it or decide to disbelieve it. Uh, there's no objective uh, right or wrong. Uh, and when it comes to climate change, it fits nicely into the idea uh, that we have the third world people and all the people who don't have private jets and don't have motor cars, uh, and they are the oppressed. Uh, and meantime, the rest of us should feel really guilty because we are privileged and we are the oppressors. And I think it's those sorts of arguments, uh, postmodernism, critical theory, that have uh, permeated the climate yes. change argument and left yes. no room for science. Yes, they're, and they've permeated um, every every debate that we have. The third rung uh, that she pointed out was universalism versus tribalism. And um, we certainly see that because if we didn't have colonialism, <laughs> we wouldn't have climate change and everyone would live in balance with nature. Um, the fact that you'd have a world population, I guess, of 500 million or something uh, doesn't seem to figure in this analysis. But it is that view that it's white men that have made climate change too. I, I suppose uh, it's mainly white men who have denounced it as well. Yes. There are one or two uh, uh, climate scientists uh, from the distaff side, but uh, uh, but the vast preponderance of them are government servants who are uh, white and middle-aged. It's uh, interesting. It's, 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 it's interesting, isn't it, that, um, we're always on a tipping point. We always have five years or 10 years left, and if we don't act, um, it's over. And we must do this instantly. And you and I can go back 30 years and find the same people, King Charles being one, making exactly these predictions newspapers propounding these same, scientific 
journals propounding this, you get 10 years or 20 years down the track and there's absolutely no embarrassment from them. No. I I read a recent analysis of Al Gore's film, The Inconvenient Truth, which found 27 predictions, which were all 27 were wrong. Uh, he didn't get one right. And yet Al Gore today is still attending WEF meetings and calling for more uh, action on climate change and making uh, a great deal of money out of it uh, without any uh, apology, without any recognition or acknowledgement, just carry on. And as you say, people from King Charles downwards uh, have said uh, we've got five years left or we've got uh, X amount of time, that time's expired, and he just says it again. <laughs> so I, uh, he's not a he's he's not a fool. He knows it's he knows it's stupid, yet he doesn't anything out. Now yeah. why does anybody do that? Well it, people do that sort of thing when they in religious um, yeah. in the service of religious beliefs, but not normally. And I can recall being called the first time a climate change denier and being horrified because it's like that's not an argument. And this abuse that they, the proponents of these wacky ideas throw around is actually how they win. They're, they're very clever, like Marxism, is very clever psychologically, isn't it? Extremely clever psychologically. Well, I think it's got, yes, it started being clever and it's, now I had 30 years of polishing and refinement. And yes. uh, uh, and now, of course, it's being taught uh, in all the schools. Yes. Uh, it's been taught in the universities for some time. So you have uh, people who are say, under the age of uh, 35. Uh, they learn at a university. They've never heard it questioned because there's nothing in the media, nothing permitted in the media. So the combination of the academy, uh, the media, uh, and uh, uh, the teaching profession, when I say the academy, I mean teaching all the way down now, right down to junior schools, uh, are now teaching climate change and encouraging marches and strikes and so forth. Uh, youngsters are learning that they have no future because the world is going to disappear in a fiery ball where we they hear the warnings, you've only got five years left or whatever. Um, I, I'm not sure that there's any way in. Uh, there's a, a lot of those people I'm saying, 30-year-olds 30, 30 say, uh, who could probably be persuaded that there's no substance in this at all and that a lot of it is cheating if they could just hear the argument. Well, but I, did, they I, had, I, totally... had, <laughs> I had a depressing experience of this, Barry. I had a, a friend's son and at high school, he was a wonderfully bright kid who you'd sit with and 
discuss all things with reason and critically. And his dad is one of us, which is to say an old white man who has got his critical faculties on. Now, this young boy succeeded very well at school, went off to university and did engineering extremely well and came out with an honours degree. And I had occasion to have dinner with him and prompted by his dad, I now re- I realised afterwards, he and I ended up in a discussion about climate change. Now, what had happened to this bright young boy was he'd become zombie-like. It was the most distressing experience because I remembered him when he was 17 and now he was 21. And all he could do was make a series of assertions. This was the true and the correct way of looking at it. When I queried him, on his assumptions or argument, I got back that this is what his professor had said, and the professor is the expert in this, that, and the other thing. And when I persisted, he just got angry, very, very angry, and ended up walking away. Now, what distressed me about this was here is a bright kid who had gone to university and hadn't learned how to argue or to think critically or how to handle a counter-argument with, oh, I hadn't thought of that, or no, you've got that wrong. No, all he could do was cite his professor, get angry, and walk away. And that's on matters of science with an engineering student. Isn't that was the most shocking experience? Yes. So he's become a propagandist himself rather than taking a thoughtful approach to it, rather than saying, this is what the professor said. I've got no reason to disbelieve him. What do you say? Yeah, he didn't take that attitude at all, which he would have about probably just about any other technical subject, but not this one. Well, it's it's that post, it's that postmodernism or critical theory where there's no truth, um, there's no basis for argument, and they haven't learned it, and of course they're working very very hard to not expose these kids to a contrary view. Well, I've had a better experience in uh, right. Tell me. talking Tell me to up. them. <laughs> yes, well, uh, I have uh, that, well, for one thing, it might be politeness. Uh, my grandchildren and others uh, give me a hearing uh, and try to to argue it. Of course, they have very little information. So as soon as you start putting some 
hard facts on the table, they say, well, we uh, we can't uh, comment on that because, uh, you know, we haven't even thought about it for five years uh, and, uh, and we just don't know. So it's quite hard to get them over the hurdle to the point where they say, well, take your word for it or we'll Google it or we'll do something. Uh, and so I'm not saying that they... Uh, they 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 change their beliefs, uh, but they are surprised, I think, to hear that there are arguments out there to the contrary because they weren't aware of that before. Isn't that in itself amazing? It is, and that's that's the most frustrating part. People should at least know that there's a dissident point of view, even if they regard them as lunatic French, but there is another <laughs> point of view. <laughs> Well, one of the things that I have learned, and I mean, uh, Nigel Lawson and Richard Lindzen and your good self are wonderful exemplars because the thing I've observed over my life is nothing moves you more, even though it may not move you at the time, of respect and politeness in a debate and the mere fact that you can respectfully discuss something counts for something and the fact that the other side just get name calling and abusive and I'm thinking of Nick Smith and Wayne Matt in particular on that particular night tells you something about the strength of their argument too and I always think that your grandchildren will go away and say, well, you know, the thing about granddad was he did, he did, he did have an argument and he wasn't rude about it. And it makes you think. Um, so I, I do believe that we have to model good behavior. And it's what we're trying to do, Barry, with our radio station, with Reality Check Radio, is like have polite discussion and debate ideas and let people make up their own mind, which isn't a bad way to go, right? Absolutely. I I think the the biggest of all threats uh, is the threat to free speech. Uh, yes. And I'm sure I uh, <laughs> I don't need to to lecture you on the topic, but um, the uh, it does seem to be attacked from so many different angles uh, almost every month. There's a new approach. There's a disinformation group. There's our internal affairs department. There's there's somebody who is highly motivated to uh, provide a censorship system. Uh, and if they keep battling away, you know, I feel that the the walls may fall. Oh, I agree. And I mean, the interesting thing, Barry, is is that they start off by saying, "Oh, we you know we're against hate speech." But you see, you and me having this discussion, this will quickly become hate speech because it's harmful. It'll be triggering people who um, don't like counter ideas, but it'll be harmful in that we're undermining society's effort to counter climate change. And that will yes. be enough to have us, you and me, shut down from having this conversation, just like Dr. Don Brash 
ex-governor of Reserve Bank, ex-leader of the National Party, ex-leader of the ACT Party, could be deplatformed at uh, Massey University for health and safety reasons. Yes, yes, it's absurd. So, um, so I, we, well, if Don Brash can be deplatformed, I know who, who can get in. Uh, who only can get somebody in? who's got several ticks of good housekeeping. Mm. But I tell you one great thing. I I had a wonderful evening with Paul Brennan, who's our breakfast host. And he said the most cheery thing, and it stayed with me for since, and it'll stay with me forever. And he explained that we will win. And he said the reason that we will win is that we have humanity. And he says by that, he means that we respect individual people as individuals. And he says it's most evident with the fact that we can laugh and that we are joyful. And I've thought about that hard, Barry, ever since, because we can have a giggle, we can laugh, uh, we can be, we are very respectful. But my goodness, the people that we're up against, those climate change zealots, those greens, those politicians, those journalists, it's like dealing with the Chinese Red Guards. There's not a lot of fun or humanity in them. No. And, well, I, I think humanity will come through at, in one way at least is that um, we are now getting to the point in the climate policy area where the climate policies are not just spending taxpayers' money by the billions, which people don't feel directly, but now we are talking about people having to spend money in their homes. We're talking about people having to pay taxes on their mm. on their utes. Uh, it is coming down to people beginning to realise that this is going to cost them their standards of living. And it's happening more in some other countries than it is here, although it's starting to happen here. Uh, and that has led, I think, to what uh, Muriel Newman wrote as the uh, the awakening, uh, in that when people start to resent a policy that's costing them money and doing them, and they're getting nothing in return, uh, they start perhaps for the first time to look back at all the things that they always knew weren't true, mm. uh, but they've gone along for the ride. But they can't afford to keep going along for the ride indefinitely. No, and I... the the cost of this net zero by 2050 uh, seems to be uh, uh, widely recognised to be uh, trillions of dollars, uh, more than every dollar spent on health and education in the world. Like you take... Every government budget in the world, what they spend on health and what they spend on education and what they spend on police, you can add them all together and they'll be spending more on climate change than the whole lot combined. Now, can we do this? Can we really see this through? Uh, bear in mind that the that nowadays the uh, climateers say that the the worst that's going to happen is we're going to get to 2.4 degrees by 2100. 
Well, now the target, the Paris target is two degrees. And they're saying 90% of the promises to get to net zero by 2050 are not believable. Uh, there's only a handful of countries who will achieve it, including New Zealand, uh, and 90% of them will not. And therefore, instead of being under two degrees, we will be 2.4 degrees. Well, a few years ago, if you had been told that global warming was going to produce 2.4 degrees, you'd have thrown your hat in the air. That would have yeah. been regarded as a great victory. We've been told six degrees. Yeah. And there's a world of difference. But, and bear in mind that two degrees is, is the imprimatur. Two degrees is okay. And we might go to 2.4. So we're talking less than half a degree by the end of the century. Now, this is as trivial and minute as the mind can contemplate. And yet, we are being told we must spend not billions of dollars, but trillions of dollars uh, to make it, to get that last 0.4 degree in the bag. And for religious reasons, um, as we feel now, it's, it's, um, and the, Cost is to be carried by everyday people, and there's nothing more sickening than to see these private jets fly into Davos or wherever and have a great conference and then fly home. And this conspicuous consumption of these celebrities who, <coughs> excuse me, who are telling Nana to, you know, turn her heater down to save the planet and pricing her so that she has to turn her heater off. It is truly, truly disgusting. But I think you're right. I think we're hitting harder times economically. We're hitting tougher times. There's a growing skepticism across racial issues, uh, gender issues, climate issues, uh, everything, COVID. COVID. Everywhere you look, there's a skepticism growing, and it's just going to, like they talk about tipping points, there's going to be a point where everyone says, no, no, I'm not putting up with this crap any longer. And woe betide, there'll be, you know, and we only can hope, Barry, that they're swept out peacefully. Yes. Well, uh, I think there's reward for party here and elsewhere, and it may not be here, it doesn't look like it's going to be here, who effectively says this has been exaggerated, we will mm. do our share, we have signed an agreement, we will uh, undertake a common sense rational program where, which is justified by cost-benefit studies. Now, the cost-benefit studies, now this is something I, I don't think is known by many people. There's been many cost-benefit studies done by uh, these uh, coupled computers. They put climate computers and tie them into economic computers, and they're highly complex, and they spit out uh, the... Uh, the costs of future uh, changes in climate. There was a, a man called Nors 
Osborne, who was more or less the father of this process. Uh, and then in 2018, he was given the Nobel Prize in economics. So this is the, if there's any way the world can honour one uh, scientist or academic over others, it's with a Nobel Prize. And it's Norsbaum is the only person who has ever received uh, a Nobel Prize or any other award for that matter for climate economics. Now, Norsbaum says that until we get to three degrees above pre-industrial levels, climate impacts will be net benefits. That until we get above three degrees, we are going to be better off with the warmer world. Now, we're only at one less than 1.1 at the moment. So... <laughs> We can keep going, we can do it twice as much as that, and we can get up to three degrees, and we're still on the right side of the ledger. But once we get over three degrees, then it starts to go downhill really quickly. Now, that's what this guy called Norsbaum, this Nobel laureate who knows more about it than anybody else in the world, and that's what he says. That's what his combined computers say. Uh, and uh, yet you never hear it spoken about. Usually a noblest can get a hearing. He, In his speech in Stockholm, in which he uh, uh, accepted the, the prize, uh, he referred to it and said he knew how unpopular it was. But of course, it's still his opinion that we'll be better off until we get to three degrees. And he's a climateer, to use your great phrase. He definitely is. Uh, he's a professor at Yale, and mm. he's started in the early 1990s trying mm. to uh, prove how bad climate was. Mm. Uh, and uh, he and John Toll in uh, the UK, uh, there's been three major figures. Uh, in 2009, John Toll wrote a paper in which he uh, summarised all of the findings uh, up to that point. Uh, and the findings were that the uh, that there was net benefit until you got above three degrees of warming, but there was incremental disbenefit. In other words, it stopped accumulating good things after about 2.5 degrees. Uh, and uh, but we were still on net. We were still ahead of the game until after three degrees, three point one degrees. He found. So that was John Toll in two thousand and nine. Uh, then there was a big effort to uh, to discredit John Toll. Uh, in the end, he resigned from the IPCC, where he had been their their principal uh, economic input. Uh, but then his competitor Norsbaum says who gets the Nobel Prize and says in accepting it that he still thinks that we will be better off up to three degrees. Now, when you contrast that, and that's a fact, I know it's an opinion, but it's an opinion, it's a fact that there is the opinion of the world's most authoritative uh, person who has investigated this area. 
Then you go to the other side and you find children being taught that if there's even one degree of additional uh, warming, that the, their lives uh, will be curtailed. Yes. There are people who say we won't have children because we won't bring children into this world uh, which is going to start to boil. Uh, and it is so contrary to what we're told by the experts. And yes. yet you won't and, read it in the media. And then we had the example in Christchurch where they were sort of not allowing vast areas of Christchurch near the sea to be developed or built upon or put a shed upon on your property because of um, sea level change. And when you looked at it, um, they used that, I think it's called, correct me if I go wrong, Barry, the RCP 8.5, which is they run these scenarios for the IPCC, and they have one that is so fanciful that even the IPCC author says, you know, this is just fanciful. But that's the worst case scenario by assuming everything turns south and that's the one that's determining whether you can extend your house or put a garage on your property. That, that I think, is, is utterly irresponsible. Um, RCP 8.5, it means radiation concentration pathway. It's a, it's a theoretical concept which provides an upper bound of what is the worst thing that anybody can imagine. Uh, and that comes in the form of uh, radiation in watts per square metre increasing by 8.5. Now, that uh, is just a scenario. It never was regarded as having any high probability, but it was picked up by uh, those who would like to shock, uh, those consultants who would like to have more work, uh, and used as the centerpiece of their of their work, and the engineers who do most of the work for um, local bodies on sea level rise around New Zealand invariably say, "Here's here's what might happen," and they use RCP eight point five. Now, the United Nations doesn't use eight point five, not anymore. It did, but for nearly two years now. United Nations has stopped using 8.5. We just heard last week that President Biden's White House is working on a new um, social cost of carbon, and it's taken out 8.5. The uh, Professor Miles Allen, in his visit to New Zealand, uh, said uh, that I wouldn't use it for policymaking, and yet we in New Zealand use it for policymaking and so why is that the case? It's just that great question, isn't it? And, it's, and you and I sort of can hypothesize that if you're a, an engineering consulting firm, um, you never get punished for going overboard on safety or and you never get punished for, you know, what's that word, creating the most extreme sort of risk risk free scenario it's just incredible and yet everyday people are carrying a terrific cost because of that 8.5 <laughs> it's 
Well, they, they even say that risk management requires you to take the worst case uh, scenario where uh, nobody in any other context has ever contended that you take the most un- least likely outcome mm. and uh, and plan your future on the basis of the least likely outcome. Uh, well, and yet, climate change, you can. Climate change, you can. Barry, we're talking with Barry Brill. You're, he's... Um, uh, Barry, I hope you will come on a, a more often because this is just the topic of the day and how it's affecting us. And it's illustrative of so many other topics that we're confronting with. And you and I, because of our exposure to climate change, became aware that science so-called, could get way off course, that great government departments could get way off course, that governments could get way off course. And we experienced that. And once you've gone over that cliff, as it were, of, what is it, disillusionment, scepticism, because I couldn't believe, Niwa, I, I still can't, that they could so brazenly, shamelessly mislead us. And even when it's pointed out to them, they just have a sort of giggle and carry on. I I lost all trust in um, figures that we should be able to trust. You know, people that we do put our trust in. You're, you're sitting there as a, as a homeowner and you put your trust in experts and their predictions. And they have such a consequence. And you and I experienced a loss of trust big time, right? Yes. Um, hugely. And, of course, it's everywhere. You'll be observing the same thing in the legal profession with them wanting to sign up to the principles of the treaty, even though the legal profession can't explain what they are. Yes, uh, there's now a move uh, calling for submissions from members of the Law Society on the proposal that the Law Society have a climate change policy. <laughs> uh, and what it's got to do with lawyers, uh, well, I suppose they have a cosmology as well. Yes, well, Barry, Brill. Uh, you're a wonderful human being. You're a great researcher. You've been a wonderful supporter of truth. And um, I very much thank you for coming on our show today. I hope that you'll come back. I hope you enjoy our discussion. And I hope you appreciate what we're doing here with Reality Check Radio is trying to have that polite discussion that we can't seem to have anywhere else. Well, thank you, Rodney. There you go. You're on Reality Check uh, Radio. Uh, Send us a text. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Send us a text at 2057. You might want to contact uh, Barry if you do. Send me a text and I'll pass it on to him. Uh, Email is inbox at realitycheck.radio. He really is uh, a total gem who keeps working and doing the most erudite of studies. You would have heard him on the methane issue and how that's being a shocking miscalculation to New New Zealand's detriment, Uh, and I believe making headway. So 
Stay tuned. Reality Check Radio. Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And now we've got my favorite part. The mailbag. I'm digging into the mailbag. You can email me, please. Inbox at realitycheck.radio or text me at 2057. And like I say, this is I love doing the interviews, I gotta say, but I love also the feedback. So please keep it coming. Uh hi Rodney, great show with Lorraine. That was Lorraine Moller. I too was a runner, had the privilege to meet and run with Lorraine. At a camp Dick set up, that'll be Dick Quack set up in the 80s. I was about 15 at the time. The camp was all set in Pawanui. Great times in New Zealand, Dave. Oh, the best of times. That would have been fantastic. Dick Quacks, Lorraine Moller. Man, that was giants. Uh, brilliant interview with Lorraine Moller. Inspiring and a timely reminder of women's rights history and the battle we face over trans ideology. Thank you, Rodney Leslie. Thank you, Leslie. Listening to your interview of Lorraine Moller, I'm a wannabe runner, started at age 58, oh my goodness, and now running daily at age 66 and setting goals and still beating my PB's personal bests in the 5K, 10K, half marathon and marathon. Keeps me out of trouble, Ross. That's amazing. Started running at 58, is 66 and actually getting better across 5K, 10K, half marathon, marathon. Go you, Ross. That's inspiring. Lesson being, Lorraine, don't worship false idols. There's only one true God. Oh, I guess. I get that. But I can imagine if you're Olympian and you're reaching back to the Greeks, I give a pass talking to Zeus. Um, and I know, not a, not the real God. Uh, to Rodney, whoa, what a terrific interview with Lorraine. I enjoyed every minute of it. Oh, me too. You are both incredibly inspiring and accomplished New Zealanders and humble to boot. Thank you. Well, the only thing wrong with that is you can't put me in the same breath as Lorraine Moller, Alison Rowe, Dick Quacks, John Walker. They were so special. Anne Ordain. The last email that starts with wow is from lee thank you lee rodney you're doing just fine keep it up that was probably when i was wearing i was talking too much dear rodney i love everything about rcr and your program it has changed my life oh my goodness oh my goodness i don't feel you could ever top the stunning interview with lorraine moller i read her book on the wings of mercury about two years ago and have recommended it to many as an extraordinary read i bet it is I um this show's changed my life too. Actually. Here's a long one. Having just listened to you talking with Chris Woodney on the 22nd of June podcast you did, I thought I must write to you. I'm around your age and my health isn't so great. I used to be a gym fanatic, weightlifting, bodybuilding, etc. Around the age of 35, I started getting sick with arthritic type pain throughout my body. Being a strong fellow with a good physique back then, I managed to carry myself through work and life, albeit in some pain, but managed. Now I'm around the 60 mark. For the last few years, I've struggled with joint pains all over, as well as inflammatory disease issues. Oh, dear. I can't imagine it, what it must be to have chronic pain. I just can't imagine it. I'm due to have two knees replaced soon, as well as a possible hip replacement. 
my life has been somewhat negatively affected, as you may well imagine. I think you're understating that. I have never been a smoker, but during the 80s, I did smoke the odd joint or two. Maybe over the years, I've tried no more than 40, if that. A few years ago, however, maybe five or six, a friend told me that cannabis could help with my pain issues. He even gave me some cannabis, but to give it a try. It was that long since I'd had any. I really didn't know how to roll a joint, let alone know what to expect when I did. Anyway, he made one for me, and he gave it to me to try whenever I felt the need. It must have been three or four weeks later, I was having a bad pain episode whilst trying to work on our property. I lit the joint up and sat down to give it a go. With shaky hands, I took a drag. I nearly coughed my lungs up, as I'd forgotten to take it down along with the smoke. That aside, the effect on the pain was almost instantaneous. Within a few seconds, I had no pain in my feet, ankles, and knees. I walked as if I was 30 years younger. Wow. I tell you what, Rodney, I had tears in my eyes. Yes, I felt a little high, and I would not have driven or operated machinery. But the feeling of pain-free body was absolute bliss. I bet it was. From that moment, I was hooked. No, not hooked on the drug itself, but hooked on the fact that I had found a switch that could give me relief from the hell I found myself in most days. I managed to secure a few small buds of cannabis, all of which fit inside my very small pill bottle. Ironically, one of my empty pain medication bottles. Now we're talking a seriously small amount here, and it lasted me for many months. I guess a seasoned pot smoker would have chugged through it in a couple of weeks or less. Moving forward, over the last three or four years, I've made it my goal to research as much as I can about the various properties, good and bad, of cannabis and its uses for all types of ailments. When you start to look into this, it opens doors that you would never believe possible. The obvious fact, the elephant in the room, I guess, at this point, being that most people use it to get some sort of high feeling. This, however, should be taken into context. Most adults I know like to have the occasional alcoholic drink or two. We have bars, pubs, restaurants, clubs, etc. all selling the stuff. We see adverts for booze on TV, Netflix especially, and even our supermarkets have whole rows dedicated to beers and wines of the world. In fact, New Zealand prides itself on the, its wine and beer industry and markets to the world. But if we look at the damage that is done due to alcohol consumption, both in monetary terms and as well as human suffering in one way or another, cannabis doesn't even enter the race. Yes, there are those who abuse the stuff, but they will continue to do so whether or not it's legal to partake. Then there are others who smoke responsibly, as they are our responsible drinkers, myself included. So why is there such a distinction from one to the other? As for violence, well, I've seen many fights break out when people are drunk I'm from the UK, and it did get a bit wild back in the day at the weekends. Conversely, people who have smoked a little weed are most always happy and chill, as opposed to drunk and aggressive. Given the choice of one, I would smoke weed over drinking booze any day, but then I'm not a smoker. The politics aside, getting back to my own efforts, I have found through research that I benefit from taking edible cannabis just before I go to bed at night. That means that I don't even get to feel the high as it ensures that I have a good night's sleep. And boy, does it do that. Instead of the many nights of waking the wife when I'm tossing and turning in pain, waking up wet through with sweat, that even if I have had any sleep to speak of, I'm actually getting full, restful sleep again. As an interesting side note, I was prescribed CBD oil by my GP. This 
didn't have near the same effect as my own blend. And also it came with horrendous price tag, which being non-subsidized and obviously a pharmaceutical product that is, can I say, only legal when prescribed, means that they can stick anything they damn well please on the price tag. A very small bottle of the liquid coupled with a visit and prescription is pushing the price of a month's supply to around $230, roughly speaking. I can't afford this even if it did work. Well, that's amazing. And I've, I've had no experience of cannabis and I'm fascinated uh, by your story. And I have to say, if I was in chronic pain, I would do whatever it took to get better. So I'm not the judgy type, and um, good for you. I love to talk, read the Grand Solar Minimum. Oh, that was with Joe Mackey. I learned about this through a guy in Telegram who now lives in Portugal and documents the climate worldwide on his Telegram channel, Electroverse. I read the book by Ian Wishart many years ago called Aircon that is still very relevant today, and that book convinced me global warming, as it was called back then, was bullshit. Thanks so much, RCR, for all your fantastic talks. It's a breath of fresh air and gives me hope. Well, thank you, and thank you for emailing. And please, everyone, that's my mailbag. Email me. I love it. Inbox at realitycheck.radio. Text at 2057. The feedback is fantastic because we're feeling our way with the show and with the radio station, and we take everything on board, and we feel that. We're a community. It's not just a, a radio station with listeners. It's a community. And we want you to be a part of it as much as we're a part of you. Because we've been alone without an ability to talk or communicate, without a media. And so we're building our own. Thank you for your input. Thank you for listening. This is Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. It has changed my life, this show, and I was so touched to learn that it changed the listener's life for the better. Thank you so much for listening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all the separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's being ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy 
one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated, and you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you loved the show as much as we loved making it. Uh, we had Don Brash talking about journalism. It's hardly journalism anymore, is it? And why he's cancelled his subscription to the National Business Review. Good on him. We had Politics Explained with Tane Webster and Marie Buskey talking about the Maori seats. And the wonderful and the very honourable uh, Barry Brill uh, explaining to us uh, climate change and why it's a total scam. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. It's been wonderful. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Rally Check Radio. Oh, and don't forget, I love the feedback. We all love the feedback. Email us, inbox at rallycheck.radio. Text us, 2057. Tell us how much you love the show. Suggest to us improvements. Give us some ideas. Tell us what you think of the shows. And if you want to contact our guests, We'll pass the messages on. So thank you for being with us. I look forward to seeing you Tuesday next week. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye from Rodney Hyde.